everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Elliot Hosman from the Ella Baker Center. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me, David. So how did you get involved uh, with the Ella Baker Center? Well, just to start, uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the Davis Vanguard. It was such a pleasure to be with y'all in person for your recent gala um, and just see the incredible work that y'all have been doing for so long and to be in community uh, with so many freedom fighters, so many folks who'd recently come home and to feel the love in the room. So thank you for what you do. Um, so much to say on that and just how y'all have been so incredibly impactful and supportive, um, particularly just in the last few years with this pandemic and really shedding a light on the injustices that are happening, the organizing that's been happening um, and this movement to really free our folks. Um, so thank you for having me. Um, I've been involved with the Ella Baker Center for a number of years now. I was actually um, in law school back in 2015. I was wrapping up my final year of law school, and I had the opportunity to choose a clinic uh, to work in for my final semester and had the um, joy of being introduced to the Ella Baker Center back then. Um, and to join as a law clerk for my last semester. Um, and at that time, we were really looking to move uh, bail reform in the state of California. So myself and my clinic partner, we put together this like 70 page memo of all of the ways in which we felt like um, bail reform could be pursued. Um, did a lot of really impactful and exciting community interviews of different organizations and people fighting on this issue, people who were impacted by bail. Um, and it was just a really beautiful project. Um, so when the semester wrapped up, I went off to go work in biotech for a few years, but I stayed involved with the Ella Baker Center um, as a mail night volunteer, um, which was a really incredible way, like political education for me in terms of like really learning about the issues facing folks who were incarcerated a lot of the conditions they were up against. Um, and in that process, I became a legal consultant um, after I left biotech. I was working with some lawyers who were fighting for the freedom of people who were incarcerated. And we happened upon this new law at the time, um, which is now our recall and resentencing law in California. 
Um, we heard about it from some women who were in Chowchilla back in 2017. We were getting letters of like, what is this law? People are getting referrals. What's going on? So we did a deep dive. Uh, myself and my, my lawyer friend, Caitlin Henry, we did a deep dive to really try to understand like, what is this potentially incredible, like, um, groundbreaking law that we could use to free thousands of people. Um, we filed a series of public records act requests with CDCR and the board of parole hearings to really wrap our minds around like what is happening. We started writing guides and holding trainings and um, doing outreach to a ton of people who were incarcerated as well as a number of community advocates out here. Um, and we started basically a, a group of people um, from a, a variety of backgrounds. Um, there were lawyers and even like prosecutorial type folks in the room. Um, there were a lot of like family members, organizers, formerly incarcerated people, currently incarcerated people. And we really started to bring people together to best understand the possibilities of this law. Um, what were the self-advocacy tools people could use to request resentencing to get their day in court? Um, and we've really been building from there. So as a part of that work, I came on to Ella Baker Center again, this time as a consultant um, back, I think, in 2019. Um, and we really started to build out sort of like tools, resource guides, trainings, just a strategic framework through which we could support um, decarceration throughout California. And then the pandemic hit. Um, and, you know, all it's of like that's always somebody's story, right? And then the <laughs> pandemic hit. Right. And it Sorry really, to interrupt. No, it's true. And it shifted everything. I mean, what we had been, we, we knew that decarceration was needful, urgent, because of, you know, just the decades of the mass incarceration in California that we'd seen, the lawsuits, the Plata and Coleman lawsuits, just seeing all the ways in which we knew our prisons were overcrowded. And then as soon as word started breaking in early 2020 of this public health um, emergency, I think myself and dozens of other organizers directly impacted people, um, advocates just saw from a mile away, just the devastation this would have um, in prisons in California, not to mention like other facilities, jails, detention centers. So we really tried to pivot everything we were doing and, and move into a rapid response organizing model of how do we get our, our people out of these congregate settings before, you know, just the, the mass transmission and spread of this deadly virus. Um, and that really led us into the building out of the Stop San Quentin Outbreak Coalition, um, which we started in like mid early 2020. Um, and the work of resentencing has always been really key to a lot of that too. I mean, really advocating for all the paths to release that do exist in California, whether it's going through the parole board, whether it's filing a commutation with the governor um, and using all of these like new tools that were being passed each year in the legislature to free our folks, um, to pass policies with CDCR and the board of parole hearings 
so that there could be, you know, rapid response medical release for people who were extremely vulnerable to COVID. Um, and uh, in June of 2021, I finally joined Ella Baker Center as full-time staff after many, many years of being in the universe, the orbit. Um, there was a new position that was created called the Prison Advocacy Coordinator. Um, so I was very blessed to step into that role and really continue the work um, that I do of resourcing people inside and their families out here, um, creating guides and toolkits, self-advocacy materials, making sure that we have the best, most accurate information that we can spread through our networks, through our communities, through contacting like thousands of people inside prisons and jails each year, and really just try to make more equitable the access that people have to these materials. Not, I mean, most people in prison, particularly people who have been down a long time, like they don't have the resources to hire a private attorney and have a full case review and really feel that kind of like post-conviction relief support every step of the way. Like the attorneys that do exist that are like scrupulous, um, they charge a lot of money um, for these sorts of things because it is very intensive work. Um, so we really wanted to empower our community to have the best Some information. Some of them are not scrupulous had. either. <laughs> There's a lot of those too. <laughs> and that has been really a heartbreaking aspect of this work. Like the more I've I've worked in this field, we it's not just the the lack of like meaningful advocates, like well-informed, um, affordable advocates in this space. We also know that we just need more prison lawyers. We need more people in this work. We need more resources in this work for indigent defense and, and public defense. But there's also just like a whole host of bad actors in this space who see sort of like a very desperate and vulnerable um, group of folks, both for currently incarcerated folks and their support networks and families who, who do not have, you know, access to, to support and are, are willing to take out loans and, you know, um, do anything in their power to bring their folks home. Um, and so that's been a, a pretty heartbreaking aspect of this work and, and just like a real motivating factor for me of like, we need to make sure that these resources exist for free that are widely accessible um, so that people can fight um, and fight for their own freedom, whether or not they're able to afford even a good attorney. Yeah, and it seems like, you know, there's kind of an intersection between your work and some of the work that we ended up doing. Um, you know, we ended up covering, uh, as you probably know, um, most of those San Quentin hearings um, uh, because it was just appalling uh, what what happened to the people incarcerated there. And And we're talking about not only vulnerable people in that they're in congregate settings, but people with health and all sorts of other needs. And um, they they have subpar healthcare. And some of these people, um, you know, I remember going out to San Quentin for a press conference, I think in the summer of 2020. And, and these people were saying, yeah, you know, we've heard from these folks who said they were as sick as they could be. And uh, staff is giving them two Tylenol and sending them back to the general population to go lie on the floor. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's just appalling. Yeah, 
it it is appalling. And I feel like, you know, the, the two Tylenol, sometimes that was the best case scenario. I know a lot of people were sent to the hole for weeks on end without any access to, you know, the basic necessities of making a pot of tea or like, you know, just trying to get some sleep or being in a familiar environment. Um, but instead, like put in forced isolation and basically punished for being sick and, and and trying to protect the other people around them by reporting it to medical staff. Um, it was a deeply troubling time. Like I remember uh, you at that press conference. That was an incredibly emotional day. Um, at the time, my loved one was still inside San Quentin. I was a mess. <laughs> we had just, uh, you know, we were really grateful for all of the legislators that came out that day um, and just stood in front of the gate and demanded um, justice, demanded to change, demanded the administration to take this seriously and to protect people and have humane solutions to this public health emergency. Um and just like I remember that morning checking the numbers and there had been a huge spike. I mean, the outbreak was well underway at that point, um, just a huge spike in cases. And I feel like during the press conference, we kept having to update our signs. There was just like, oh, we thought there were 400 people with the COVID virus. Now it's 800. Like, will it continue to go up today? Like, that was a, a very emotional time. And I was so grateful for just like the press coverage that the Davis Vanguard and, and other media outlets gave um, to these efforts, to the pleas for empathy and just humane treatment um, from currently incarcerated people with the demands that they put forth to the formerly incarcerated people and their our loved ones and networks and support and everyone who joined us to just try to shed light on this issue. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been, it's, it's weird to historicize it at this juncture since we're still so much in the pandemic. Um, but it, it did feel like a real like peak of, of sort of like the crisis, um, and a very emotional time. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of your work in resentencing. Uh, what, what is your specific role? What, um, what duties do you do with regard to advising people on resentencing? I feel like I wear many hats in this space, David, which I feel like you can appreciate so well. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I started as sort of just like a legal associate, an assistant on these cases, just trying to wrap our heads around, like, what is this law? What can it do? How do we resource people with the best information? And it quickly turned into sort of an organizing type role as well, because we knew we wanted to connect, you know, a lot of different uh, people across the state, make sure they all had this information so we could coordinate support for the hundreds of people that are being referred um, by CDCR for this resentencing. Um, so I have, it's sort of been a macro and a micro and an all at the same time kind of thing. I'm in regular conversations for the past many years with um, currently incarcerated people and their families, just trying to brainstorm like how to request relief. What is happening in their specific county? What are the courts like there? What is the district attorney's position there? What moves um, those actors to act upon a resentencing referral or to make a referral in the first place? Will there be pushback when they go into the courts? How can they best prepare documents um, to show they have realistic parole plans, to show that they express remorse, to show some of like those key factors that the judge will look at um, when adjudicating sort of the interests of justice standard? Um, and 
a lot of the work that I do specifically at the Ella Baker Center is implementing um, laws that we've passed in the last many years. So while these resentencing laws came into effect through like a um, Governor Brown budget item and a series of bills that went into effect before I was working at Ella Baker Center, um, Ella Baker Center has passed a number of sentence enhancement repeal laws that have been deeply impactful in this space. Um, as you well know, and as many advocates um, mourn, uh, many times when we're trying to pass laws to free our folks, um, often what's cut out at the last minute in the amendment process is retroactivity. So we may get a bill moving forward that says you can't apply these ineffective, excessive enhancements to people sentenced after, you know, January 1st, 2021. Um, but it doesn't necessarily provide any relief for the hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of people serving time on what's now deemed legally invalid enhancement time. Um, so we've been really going back to make our laws retroactive as best we can. We passed um, SB 483, which went into effect January 1st of this year. Um, SB 483 makes retroactive two enhancement repeals, um, the one-year prison prior enhancement, the three-year drug prior enhancement. Um, and it created, as of January 1st, a right to resentencing, like um, a way for people to get directly back into court um, to have these enhancements removed. And it creates 14,000 resentencing hearings, and it will remove a minimum of 20,000 years off of people's sentences by the end of 2023. Um, but we've also passed a number of enhancement bills that we're still trying to figure out how to make retroactive in the legislature. And in the interim, these resentencing laws that do exist allow for people to get back into court if they have a law enforcement referral um, from either the prison system or the district attorney in their county of conviction. So the judge can look at old enhancements um, and has the discretion to remove those from their sentence to conform their sentence with what it would have been if they'd been sentenced today instead of 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and in many cases, the judge has full discretion um, to resentence them to time served and allow them to rejoin their community. Um, so that's been really the heart of a lot of the work we've been doing for the past many years is figuring out how to get people the best information so that they can advocate for themselves, get back into court and have these old enhancements removed. Um, we passed SB 1393, which went into effect January 1st, 2018. That's the five-year uh, prior felony enhancement. Um, that is still not a retroactive bill, um, but there are there's 100,000 years of, of those enhancements um, being served currently by people in California prisons. And hundreds of those folks have been referred um, by the prison system, as well as DAs. Um, back to court to get those enhancements taken off their sentence and resentencing. Um, so there's a lot more that we want and need to do. I mean, there have been, you know, hundreds of people referred. I think CDCR has referred about 2,000 people at this point, but we still have a ton of pushback in the courts as, as judges are still learning these laws, um, learning what's possible, what their discretion can do. 
Um, obviously, we face a lot of pushback from prosecutors across the state as well. I mean, there have been a few key offices that have been very supportive of this. Um, but generally speaking, um, it's been inequity, be, inequity by geography. Um, you can have the same referral letter from the prison, but given this county that you're in can have a completely different result um, in whether or not you have meaningful resentencing. And that's really been something we've try, been trying to address with our allies um, of how do we create more equitable outcomes across the state um, with these resentencing laws going into effect. Yeah, that was one of the questions I was actually going to ask with regard to 1170D because it relies so heavily on prosecutors. And some prosecutors, you know, ha have prioritized doing it. Some claim that they have prioritized doing it and haven't. And others have no interest in doing it at all. Um, that seems to be creating a very different playing field. Absolutely. Um, and that can be said for both, like when the referrals come from the prison system, come from CDCR, or when the DAs use their own power to make these referrals. I mean, we have seen some progress, both in the substance of the law, as well as sort of like the number of counties where district attorneys are at least starting pilot programs to make these referrals. Um, we are really grateful that our allies passed a bill called AB 1540, which also went into effect of January this year. It created a presumption in favor of resentencing, among other really meaningful uh, procedural due process rights. So now the DA has a much larger burden if they're going to um, try to fight against someone's resentencing if they got a referral from CDCR. Um, there's also $18 million in the governor's budget um, for three years of pilot programs in nine counties um, where district attorneys in those nine counties will be putting together a process and criteria and are encouraged to make a meaningful amount of resentencing referrals. Um, but there's still so much work to be done. And it is disheartening a lot of the times when I'm speaking with family members or currently incarcerated people, because that first question, one of the first questions I'll ask is, well, what county um, is your conviction out of? And that really is so determinative of what their options are after that, right? Like whether they have meaningful access to request resentencing, whether once they get that referral, if they do, um, the courts will give them justice or if it will just sort of be like an immediate denial or a pretextual reason for denying them. Um, so we have a long way to go. Um, and I'm, I'm really hopeful that in the next year, um, number of years, that we can really try to amend and pass more laws that can create more statewide equity when it comes to resentencing outcomes. Because as it stands right now, it's really reliant upon law enforcement being complicit in your release. And that is not historically their job. Um, <laughs> like This was something that we heard um, from wardens uh, across the prison system. You know, even though there are laws in place and regulations in place within CDCR that encourage staff and wardens to make referrals for people for Sacramento to review for an official referral back to court. 
There were wardens across the state that were saying, yeah, we don't do that. We're not in the business of releasing people. We're in the business of keeping people in prison. Like that is our job. Um, and so it really flew in the face at a facility level um, against the sort of like Sacramento policy that was trying to be moved forward. Um, so we have a long way to go. Um, and there's also just been so many incredible stories along the way, freedom stories, success stories, just people coming home um, from incredibly long sentences that didn't think they'd have a meaningful shot at coming home as soon as they did um, because of these laws. So we're trying to build upon that hope, those victories, um, and to continue to just push the door open wider um, for more and more people, and to do so in a, with a mind towards not leaving people behind, particularly around like these categorical exclusions. Um, we've seen so many categorical exclusions from both the prison system side as well as the district attorneys. Um, and the criteria that they use to kind of screen people for who they'll make a resentencing referral for, um, the types of exclusions we've seen have been people who are serving life without the possibility of parole sentences, people who are serving cases where they have to register on the California Sex Offense Registry, um, people who haven't been down long enough, um, people who have had rules violations in the last five years, like a number of factors that really are not relevant to the call of the statute, which is, is this person's incarceration further incarceration in the interest of justice? And that is beyond sort of like, you know, not standing for count or having a curtain hanging in your cell or having a case that is, you know, deemed to be of the unspeakables or the untouchables of, of, of the prison system. Um, it is really more of a justice question. Um, and so we're really continuing. We've been fighting in public comment for many years to try to take down some of these exclusionary criteria. Um, we've had some success along the way, but many of these criteria still stand in the policies. Um, and we really need to take those down so that everyone has a chance to get back into court. I'm wondering if you can um, share a few stories, maybe success stories of people that were able to be resentenced and get out who maybe thought that they were going to be in for life. There's so many stories I want to share. I wish I had had the wherewithal to think of um, getting people's consent to share their stories before this podcast. Well, you don't need to give their names. Um, yeah, I think, you know, there, there have been... I've seen so many people um, come home and that has been a really beautiful thing. I think particularly when we're looking at things like three strikes cases, um, knowing that you know people had so many enhancements stacked and stacked and stacked and also got the 25 to life for their third strike, that it's been so incredibly powerful to see all of that time come off and for them to come home often decades before their minimum parole eligibility date. Um, one thing that's been really striking is how quickly resentencing can move um, when all the parties are aligned. So a dear friend of mine, um, there was a, a county where we had a more conservative district attorney. I'm going to try to be very nonspecific. Um, there was a county where there was a very, you know, conservative, historically conservative district attorney who had never considered resentencing before. 
Um, people have been writing to them for years, trying to request this. They hadn't moved on anyone. Um, and a friend of mine was serving a, a case for a violent felony. And we had been told by everyone, um, this attorney, this district attorney will never make a referral. And they definitely will never make a referral for a violent, quote unquote, violent case. Um, but the person's family um, is just an incredible family with an organizing and movement background. They really like rallied so much community support behind this person. This person put together an incredible packet um, and just pled to the district attorney for mercy and for a second look, um, showed the remorse that they had for the harm that they had caused, um, showed the community support that they had. Um, and within a month of them sending that packet to the district attorney, the district attorney got back to them and was like, yeah, we'll make a referral. Just completely blew us out of the water. And a month later, they were home. Wow. So within two months, we went from a completely impossible situation that everyone said was not going to work um, to literally being able to stand beside my friend and hug them and have them stop by the office and advise us on, on bills that we were looking at and just do incredible work out here in our community. And I think that's the story that people need to hear more of is like the people who are currently incarcerated are not who you think they are. If you're watching true crime television or, you know, watching some of these prison documentaries or, you know, believing what mass media will tell you about who's currently incarcerated, like people have changed. Like people can change, people do change. People are healing themselves and healing each other inside and healing their communities, even through the walls. And when they come home, they're able to actually stop the cycles of violence that we're trying to fix, quote unquote, with our prison system. It's not actually prisons that keep us safe. It's like we keep us safe. And the more people that come home, the more of their emotional intelligence, their healing tools, their just incredible hearts um, are out here guiding us in a path to community healing and to making our public safe. Um, so that's been a really beautiful aspect of, of this work is just seeing people come home, seeing the impact they have out here once they've come back. Um, and just seeing the healing that can happen in a family. I think oftentimes we forget about the impact that incarceration has on the family of the incarcerated person, how their own healing can sometimes be frozen in a way for decades. And the incredible shift that can happen when their loved one comes back home, is able to reintegrate into the family um, and support their family emotionally, financially, and just to like reunite families is, is my, one of my favorite parts of this work. I think, you know, one of the interesting points that you made is you said, um, you know, these incarcerated people are not who people think they are. And I've worked with so many incarcerated people over the years that, um, you know, are not the same person that they were when, when, you know, they committed whatever crime that they committed, if they even committed a crime. In some cases, I've worked with wrongfully convicted people who are completely innocent, but that, that's another story. You know, um, I always get this pushback, though, um, you know, often I'll advocate for releasing uh, someone or, you know, um, you know, let it, uh, reforming a law 
And, and somebody will invariably say, well, do you want that person next door? Would you let them with your kids? And I'm like, do you know me? You know, I, I don't even give it, you know, two thoughts anymore. It's just yeah. not an issue for most of the time. I mean, there, there are definitely people I don't want to be hanging out with. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I think we can kind of, you know, screen that out, um, in these processes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think like, I, I got into this work, um, at a time in my life where I was sort of like in the peak of my, like, you know, feeling hurt by the world, not trusting other people very much. Like I was especially of a mind at that time where I really didn't trust men because of my own trauma, my own experiences and in various settings. I just hadn't had a meaningful relationship with a man in, in many years. And when I got involved in the work, um, I was doing a jail fight project that brought me into San Quentin to do an art project back in 2017. Um, we were building out an art zine, working with an editorial team inside of San Quentin um, to produce um, a zine full of like people throughout jails and prisons throughout California who wanted to comment on mental health, how we do self-care and community care while incarcerated. Um, and it was through that work that I actually met some of the most beautiful people I'd ever met. Um, deeply introspective, deeply emotionally intelligent, like deeply thoughtful people. Um, and it kind of re it rebuilt my trust in people, in men, in just a variety of, you know, experiences that I had kind of shut myself off to out of my own trauma, my lack of trust, um, and really helped me to heal. Um, as I was doing this work of, um, you know, working on these projects, supporting people in their freedom journeys. Um, and those are the people that are inside prison. I mean, I agree with you, like, there's always going to be the exception to the rule. And there, you know, this is why we need a more humane, um, alternative to accountability and safety for when there is harm caused. Um, but the vast majority of people who are currently incarcerated, um, the almost 100,000 people in our prison system, the vast majority of them could come home tomorrow with the right resources, with that community support, so that they have a meaningful shot at successful reentry. Um, and just be incredible leaders and, and, and family members and neighbors. Um, the thing is, I think that is often forgotten in, in some of the pushback that we get, and even in some of the movement, is I think there's this often this binary where we think that there are people who cause harm and there are people who have survived harm or been the victims of harm. And everyone I've met in prison has was first a survivor of harm was first someone who was harmed, whether as a child or in their community, um, who did not have the support they needed um, from their family, from their community, were in desperate situations, were in hard times, and made decisions that they are not proud of today, that they would not do again if they had had the, the maturity, the resources to choose differently. Um, and so I think people really need to understand that too, is like, there isn't just a group of survivors and a group of people who are perpetrators of harm. Like it is a Venn diagram and it is nearly complete. And the people who are in our prisons, prisons are not getting 
the resources that they need to heal, but they are healing regardless. They are healing each other despite the system not being set up for them to succeed. They are resilient. They are finding a way to succeed. They are supporting each other in their success and their healing and living amends and making those living amends to their families and communities and to society. Um, and I just wish more people had a chance to, to know who was inside and how desperately we need them out here. Yeah, I think there are a lot of great thoughts there that would all be um, fodder for another segment here. <laughs> um, unfortunately, uh, we're, we're just about out of time. Uh, you know, one question I guess I would ask, which I always ask, is, you know, what if people want to get involved? What if people want to help out? Uh, how would you recommend they do that? Aw, thank you for putting that question out there, David. I appreciate it. We always have tons of ways um, for folks to plug in to support the work, to support the movement. Um, in my role at Ella Baker Center, we have our prison meal program, um, and we're at a very exciting time of year. Um, we're doing our annual holiday mailing where we connect with all of the people on our mailing list, which right now is about 9,000 people. We coordinate hundreds of volunteers. We provide all the supplies they need, the stamps, the holiday cards, the envelopes, the newsletters. And we encourage people to take packets of like 25 each or more if they can and just write a note that humanizes people, that honors their experience, that reminds them that we care about them, that we're fighting for them during this lonely time of year. Um, so would always encourage folks um, to, to sign up. We have about six weeks left of this big push and we need, we have enough people right now to send 6,000 cards. So we're still looking for people to send those other 3,000 cards. <laughs> we so will how did they get in touch with you guys? Huh? How do they get in touch with you if they want to send a card? Well, you can always email me. So my email is Elliot, E-L-L-I-O-T, at EllaBakerCenter.org. And I can connect you with the holiday mailing program. We also have our monthly virtual prison mail nights that we do, usually the second or third Thursday of each month in the evening. Um, and that's a chance for us to gather together. It's dozens of people, EBC staff, volunteers, interns, community members who have been with us for a long time. And we collectively respond to letters that we receive from inside, providing people with answers to their questions, resources that can help them with their self-advocacy, updates on new laws that have passed. So you can definitely RSVP to me. I'll get you connected to the calendar invite. I can share with you information about our holiday mailing um, and we also work each year to pass laws in the legislature. So if folks are interested in getting involved and being a part of our lobby days, doing legislator visits, um, on like some of the bills we passed in last year include like the Racial Justice Act for All, um, which is combating racism in our court system. Um, but each year we have a really exciting slate of bills that we're working to pass through the legislature. So there's always opportunities for people to make phone calls, to send emails, to show up in Sacramento so we can get you connected to those campaigns as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, David. What a pleasure. Thank you for your beautiful questions. Thank you for having me on. I'm really excited um, to continue to build with Davis Vanguard as we move forward. Um, and thank you for just 
taking the time to highlight the work that we do and how important resentencing is in California. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.